0: You can't kill crypto, son, can't kill Bitcoin, you can't kill Ethereum, and no matter how hard you try, you can't kill Goku either. (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem Baruch, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Lockie. How are you doing today, Mike? I am fantastic. All right, so Mike, this is another installment in our 101 series. We haven't released a 101 in a while. We've been having fun with those roundtables, but I'm excited. This uh, this comeback was looming. Ah, I see you there. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, come on, that was expected at some point in my intro. But seriously, today we're going to look at Loom 101. We're going to break this coin down. Actually, Mikey is going to break it down for us. I don't know anything about Lumen. I'm pretty excited about it for obvious reasons. Uh, But Mike, before we start, we have some pretty cool news about our acceptance into... We're now in a partnership with our cryptocurrency, the subreddit. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this was great news for us. Last night, we got confirmation that We're still in the works for deciding exactly what's going to fit our needs and their needs, but I believe preliminary discussions, we're going to have a one-hour show in their Discord server on the audio chat where we're going to do a lot of Q&A and we're going to work with them on a regular basis. Uh, And and this is huge for us because I believe Brent said that subreddit has over 700,000 subscribers and their Discord server has over 3,000 members in their Discord server. So this is a huge, huge break for us and something that we could really capitalize on going forward.
0: Yeah, we're super excited. Uh, Our cryptocurrency is pretty active and, uh, you know, hopefully... They like hearing us talk about cryptocurrency. So that's going to be a lot of fun, and we'll make sure we include that somehow. We'll either add links to the Discord, we'll make sure we add some invites, or maybe, depending on how it comes out, we might even record the whole thing and release it as an episode. We'll see if that works out.
1: Yeah, we're considering uh, releasing on Patreon each week. We're considering a few different things, but um, one thing I wanted to mention before we moved on is is that I believe Brent said this is the second largest subreddit under the under crypto umbrella in all of Reddit itself. So that's a really big deal especially because a lot of people credit Reddit as somewhat the birthplace of what crypto is becoming. It's the the paving grounds for what this is hopefully going to be.
0: Yeah, well, if you're not on Reddit, get on Reddit because <laughs> Uh, I mean, I hate to use just like a company's tagline, but they really are the front page of the internet. So whatever you're into, Reddit's pretty sweet. I'm not even a techie guy or a social media guy, but I am unhealthily um, obsessed with Reddit. It's bad. So let's get focused on Loom, though. However... All right, so Mike, the way we usually want to start things off is by revealing bias to give you some, the audience, some context into how you found out about this project, what your opinions were before you actually started it, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know anything about Loom. All of my information about Loom has come a little bit from Mike. But Mike, when you were going to research this project, tell us where you were coming from.
1: I strictly came from a place of personal interest, it started as something that came under my radar. Um, we'll get into this a little more detailed as the show goes on. However, I will admit that they elected to run a Kickstarter over an ICO for one of their DApps, which is going to be a game that we will get into a lot further. And I will say that after researching that game, I decided to invest in the Kickstarter after I did my preliminary research on the Loom Network itself. And I was very excited.
0: So you saw the Kickstarter, and then it was this game. That, that interested you, and you decided to look into the game. And then you liked the game design so much that you were like, oh, I got to look into this uh, company or project. And then you decided to invest?
1: Literally, so far, every single thing that I've looked at has massively exceeded my expectations of
0: what I was expecting to find. Whoa, spoiler alert, son. Spoiler alert. Right, I,
1: want my, so I, L- I think it's important that's that my 101, biases... Guys.
0: My biases are placed <laughs> up
1: front, guys. I I want you to know that I stumbled upon this, found it, did a bunch of research, really liked it, and that's why hey, that's why we're doing a one-on-one on it.
0: All right, Mike. So, why don't you actually break down for us what this company's vision is? Like what is Loom all about?
1: So I, I kind of put two different things down here in my mind because we, we always like to include what I consider the very boring tagline for what the company is. And to me, that doesn't really do a lot of justice in what my research has told me. But what they what they list themselves as is one of their main tags is that they want to be, the Loom Network wants to be a platform as a service, which is going to allow Ethereum-based Solidity applications to run on a on a single chain and those chains are going to be run on, on the main chain, private chains, and they're also going to have semi private, semi public chains. And, you know, the, the obvious goal is to allow developers to have access to smart contracts so that they can use them for all the uses. What I consider to be more of the better way to describe this is that they are a scaling solution for Ethereum that has a subsection that they're going to focus on mobile gaming, PC gaming, et cetera. It's all about the side chains and what they, what their vision is, is that they want to have every D app is going to have its own side chain, which is only going to record the necessary data from those D apps and only report them back to the main chain when it's necessary. Obviously there's a okay. lot more involved in that. But that's the idea that they're really focusing on.
0: Okay, yeah. So this is something that we've seen in this space, this development towards like taking a major chain like Ethereum or Bitcoin and building around it, just creating a lot of mobility and flexibility for it. So Mike, based on what you said, though, it would be incorrect to look at Loom as a gaming cryptocurrency then, right? You're saying, no... What they are about is more scaling, and they're using gaming as a perfect platform to show like a proof of concept. Basically, this is a niche that they can target to show that they're a good scaling solution.
1: The best way that I would describe that would be, you know, the Crypto Basic Podcast. We have one hundred ones. We have Friday flagships. We have crypto convos. We have other things, but we are like our flagship is just one of our things that we're good at. This a flagship would be their example of what this gaming chain is. So they have a very specific gaming chain and that gaming chain is meant to attract what will be the games onto the blockchain. And they're all going to follow this main chain. Now, one of the things that we're gonna learn is in order to have transactions that don't need confirmations on the same network, you can use the information and it between chains using plasma, which we will get into more. But the idea is not every transaction, not every detail needs to be recorded on a blockchain.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm sold. And I'm interested. You're using some of my favorite words. You said cryptocurrency, you said gaming. So I'm excited. Uh, give me a little bit of history here before we actually dive in.
1: Yeah, the history was pretty interesting. And one of the things that I found right away, you know, obviously was that they did not have an ICO for the DApp that I eventually decided to invest in. The The team also has no white paper. And, you know, they've t- decided to take a little bit of a – I'm going to use this name with a grain of salt – a Dan Larimer approach. And I, and I am not a big fan of Dan Larimer at all. But whether we like it or not, Dan Larimer has produced – A lot of working products in this space, which not many other people
0: have done. Dan Larimer is uh, the creator of Ripple, the creator of Steam. Um, Also EOS,
1: also BitShares, I believe. Correct. I'm not certain he's a creator of Ripple, but I know he was involved in some fashion.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I just wanted to, for anybody listening who didn't know.
1: So what he has done is put out working products. And they may not be the best working products, but they do work. And they... We're able to be privately funded through Techstars New York, which I did a little digging around. It seemed like a place for venture capital or angel investors. It didn't seem like I needed to do much research past that, but no ICO, no white paper. And um, I haven't been too big on the website medium, but we do stumble across a lot of things crypto related on there. So I've been learning that platform a little more. This company runs a really elaborate medium. And their no white paper post also includes like a 40,000 word explanation of, of what things are, how they're broken down, their team. It's, there's no like set PDF, but the information is readily available.
0: All right. Okay. So they didn't write a white paper necessarily, but that doesn't mean that they haven't gone out of the way to explain how their platform works and what they're trying to accomplish.
1: Correct. Right. So... There's a couple different problems that they realized were going to need to be worked on. And the obvious one that we've talked about in depth on this podcast is mass adoption. So one of the things that the Loom network did was they put a lot of attention into a software development kit, also known as an SDK. What are SDKs? Well, an SDK is a type of software developed by, you know, a developer, a team, whoever that is meant to be stolen in a way, it's meant to be used, it's meant to be utilized. So some of the examples of a software development kit, have you noticed that a lot of the wallets in cryptocurrency, especially if they're a fork of Bitcoin, all have the same type of wallet. And that's because that software development kit is available on GitHub, I believe. So any cryptocurrency that's interested in a wallet that has these certain number of provably safe features, such as, you know, cryptographic proofs, I mean, encryption, I mean, um, addresses, just all these things that make a wallet secure, safe, and usable is available. That's why PIVX wallet, Dash wallet, um, a lot of these wallets all look and function the same way.
0: Yeah, I think uh, one possible way to describe a software development kit is basically the tools that a platform or a company would give to developers so that they can easily work on whatever platform they created. So you could have like a uh, Ethereum SDK would be something that has a bunch of tools and shortcuts already built in systems so that you can easily build something that is compatible with Ethereum.
1: Right. And... And this is how they decided to go about this. So they created the software development kit, which they labeled as Crypto Zombies. It was the first product they put together. And what this product was, it's meant to be given to developers that aren't as familiar with Solidity as they are with other programming languages. A lot of computer programming language options are very convertible if you know how to translate them. So what a software development kit does is it translates most of the common use cases for programming into more visual, more it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically you're going to be able to build a game within a game, like, like paint, for example, imagine if you were open up paint shop and you had a picture and you could make the picture do certain things, or you could animate it in some fashion. All of that is what is known as a software development kit. It's making programming things much simpler than they are otherwise, so they made this crypto zombies game, and they decided to host what they're calling hackathons. And I was a little confused at that term hackathon because we've we know white hot hat hackers how they can do good. We we know hacking is like an interesting term, but they didn't. What I've learned is they aren't really using this in a code breaking type of way. They're using it as they have these hackathons that last like 24 hours, and they run them more like competitions. And in those competitions, they will get like 30 example maybe uh, 10 teams of three developers together and they will give them the software development kit and they have 24 hours to build the most interesting game that they can and there's prizes awarded and basically what they're doing is they're allowing people to learn the programming language in a much simpler way and they believe that through those fashions the mass adoption will be much easier to achieve.
0: Okay so basically these guys know that their flagship kind of uh, product is going to be gaming and they decided to game gamify some of the first stuff that they were releasing to the public to make it a game to get the community engaged. Cool.
1: And so far, they've had massive responses. I believe uh, they're hosting their second one in Beijing, and they've they've hit a bunch of uh, Asian cities. One of the things that I was going to touch on later is that they formed a partnership with the largest mobile app development in China, the company that does the largest app development in China with over 600 million users total with over 100 million users per month. So what this partnership is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. These are all people that are like part-time developers or passionate developers and being able to form a partnership with the largest group of these in China seems like it's going to pay off huge dividends long term you know obviously as a as a north american gamer we know what percentage of games have originated from china and, and more so japan but especially in the 1990s most of these console games were all coming from japan and that's the really the place where you can build this and make it into something
0: great yeah, you know, especially, I think even um, more, I don't want to say more importantly, but regardless of where the games are coming from, that's definitely a community that has embraced esports and online gaming. And, uh, you know, it's just a massive market for gaming right now. So, totally makes sense. And uh, you want to finish up? I see a couple of more points here on the history, Mike. I don't know if you want to talk about... Yeah,
1: I'll try to keep these other points quick. Um, the first that um Diap chain that they launched was an app called delegate call, which I guess is very similar to something I'm not familiar with called stack overflow, but I did actually use delegate call. I got in and it, it had reddit slash Steam qualities with Karma and upvotes and downvotes. And it was meant to be a place where you could just type in any sort of Loom Network question or Ethereum question or Solidity question and other people could view those questions, answer them, just basically a and a with the community. So that was a fairly seamless experience. I would say it was somewhat comparable to Steam itself in my experience there. So that's pretty good quality in my opinion couple other things. The the name of the game that I actually did find the Kickstarter for was named Zombie Battlegrounds, which the name of the gaming chain is called Zombie Chain. So Zombie Chain features Zombie Battlegrounds. It's a game uh, similar to Hearthstone for those familiar, which combines some elements of Magic the Gathering trading card games and other uh, live action games. Last but not least, just a couple of things that I know Brent likes to make a point of, so I'm going to include them in here. Um, it's an ERC-20 token. It is fixed supply at 1 billion tokens. 350 million of those are in a reserve fund for the team that they don't plan on touching for a couple of years. They say they are well-funded. If you take a look around their website, their, their game trading grounds, The animations look fantastic. You you can tell that it's a really good project, a really good team that's working hard to make the little details go the best that they
0: can. So, Mike, I have a question for you here, a couple, actually. Um, 350 million tokens are reserved for the team, so that's about 35%. Uh, it's maybe on the higher end, but not particularly higher than a lot of the projects we cover. My question though is, uh, were these tokens distributed? You talked about a Kickstarter, but were tokens assigned during that Kickstarter? Oh no, 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 no.
1: they they had right. no public fundraising for the Loom token. When we get to the features and structures, there's a whole section we're going to talk about the use cases for the Loom token, why it's different than the than the um, Kickstarter that I invested in, and what these types of things are for. I did mention earlier there was no ICO for Loom Network; it was all privately funded. So this gotcha. is one of those things that I don't I don't make a big deal out of this, and I think this is just a noteworthy thing to add.
0: Okay, perfect. In that case, um, I think it's time to move to the rapid fire section. All right, our rapid fire section is a series of simple questions that give us a brief overview of the token before we dive into the actual structure. Mike, question number one, is this a coin, token, or platform? As we've developed the
1: podcast, I feel like most are becoming platforms, so this one also qualifies as that. I wouldn't mind if we found a better question in the future.
0: Uh, okay, gotcha. But here's a question, though. Isn't this an ERC-20 token? I'm a little confused about that. Is there going to be is. things that are built on it, itself? Oh, It, it hosts sidechains. Right, right. So maybe it's kind of similar to ontology, then. Most in likely. In that sense. Okay, is it decentralized? Not yet. Not yet, okay, so they do plan on being decentralized or not necessarily?
1: Uh, We'll have a conversation about that.
0: Okay, all right, is it
1: mineable or stakeable? The Loom Network token is an ERC20 token. However, on the DApps, each DApp has the option of choosing their own consensus mechanism up to and including delegated proof of stake. There are some projects that will allow you to stake Loom tokens within the sidechain for rewards.
0: All right. Is the mainnet live? Yes. Last and most importantly, Michael, does this sound cool?
1: I rarely get to be the first person to answer this question, so I'm excited. (laughs) I'm going to say yes, mostly for the reason that it just doesn't sound exceptionally dumb or like anything else (laughs) or I don't know. I'd say it's like... average to slightly above average business name. And I think that it doesn't compare itself directly to anything else. When I hear Loom, I don't think of competitors. I I think it works.
0: Okay. So I like the name and pure nostalgia. I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but there was a game back in the nineties called Loom, which was awesome. It was one of the Lucas art games, um, which it was like a PC game. Uh, it was really interesting, whatever so loom. interesting
1: it wouldn't surprise me if somehow that was connected if I, if if you can remember that from that long ago then it wouldn't surprise me if somebody else on this team has that connection
0: i feel like loom is um pretty like seminal you know what i mean like it's it's like a big time game for that it's kind of like um you know mist or mm-hmm. yeah like, there's just some games that were pretty big wolfenstein like, like, 3d one. right right exactly exactly Uh, All right, so why don't we actually explain how this technology works, Mike? Dive in wherever you want.
1: Yeah, I got a lot of notes here. Uh, I'll get to as much as I can. I I wanna make sure this isn't boring in any way, but the the most important thing that I wanted to touch on leading off with the features and structures are the use cases for the tokens. And there's a few. Anybody that wants to develop a side chain needs to stake a certain amount of Loom tokens and all of the bandwidth slash electricity slash gas fees all come out of those staking rewards. So it's possible that um every let's say there's a hundred people that are running d apps, and of those hundred people, ten of them are using fifty percent of the gas fees on the network. It isn't justified to charge everybody you know, 1% of the total gas fees. There is a bandwidth weighted system. So certain bigger projects can, they're going to have different fees to run this. But in either case, the tokens are going to be important for holding your chain together. Another thing we touched on earlier, the Hearthstone style game called Zombie Battlegrounds. If you have extra loom tokens, you can stake them on that game and receive what they're labeling a... A uh, loot box, like a monthly reward based on how many Loom tokens you've you've staked. So, for example, you can get packs, you could get specialty cards, you just get rewards, whatever that you know means to you.
0: So, Mike, real quick, is the expectation here? Uh, you know, not everybody in the audience necessarily plays a lot of these games. So, when you're talking about getting a monthly loot box, so obviously you're talking about maybe special cards, like you said, special powers, but is this just going to be uh, something that the person can enjoy in gameplay or is the expectation that these are going to be assets that have value? I
1: love that you very organically asked that question in that way, but it actually sets up a really good answer that I have for you.
0: <laughs> so
1: the, from the user experience, there's two different categories for the tokens. There's the, the actual player, And that process couldn't be easier. There's no crypto involved in any way, shape, or form. If you go on the website, you can buy a membership token. That membership token is $1.99. And it gives you one Loom token in a wallet stored on their website where they control the private keys. They control everything. If you have an account with one Loom token in it, that acts as the key to unlock every feature on the Loom network. So from a player perspective, it is $1.99 for unlimited access to this world. And it can be as simple as logging into a website, getting a username, password, and logging in from there. From the developer side, that's where exchanges are coming going to gonna come in. That's where proof of stake is going to come in. And basically they said, they don't care to introduce the cryptography to the user. What they do expect is that that most people's first bits of Ethereum are going to come from this game. And that's what they're hoping because one of the things they're adding is a digital marketplace for all assets on this game. Other games are gonna be included of course, but for now what caught my interest the most is that everything that you get, whether it's cards, packs, everything, they can all be sold for a price in a marketplace that they're creating. I believe they're gonna use Ethereum as the main trading pair for all the items in the game. But what that's gonna allow is a couple of things. One, if you're the type of player that gets interested in the game, likes it, is not afraid to spend the money on it, then you're gonna have an option. If you decide that you don't like it, then you're gonna be able to get something in return. I'm not saying you're gonna get a great return, but even if I had a game that I put $100 in, I decided I was not a fan, which is what happened with me with Hearthstone. This game was supposed to fix a long time game that I was a big fan of, Magic the Gathering. Hearthstone came along, I wanna say about four years back, maybe a little more at this point, and it was supposed to be the next big craze. All of my friends were playing it. The gameplay was much improved. However, other games evolved faster. I spent some money on that game, decided I'd, I wasn't a big fan. And basically, I had to leave my account dormant for an extremely long time. Cards that I had on there probably had a lot of value when I got them. They could have had value in an open marketplace. But over time, they just rotted away. There's pros and cons to that, of course. Isn't that better for the business? Well, yeah, but crypto is a market that's by the people for the people. So they're trying their best to remove those types of properties.
0: So, Mike, and the market where you sell it, you're selling it in an open market to people, right? It's just basically... It's going to
1: be very similar to an exchange, I would imagine, but you would need your... you know. I mean, I hate
0: to use this, but it'll be like Mount Gox, where you could basically sell your magic cards, except hopefully no scam.
1: Obviously... <laughs> We don't related, to it. yeah unrelated businesses, but I never used Mt. Gox and I've never like seen what their user experience was like. I've actually wondered what a magic card digital exchange would look like, because, again, uh, magic card values fluctuate as much or more than crypto does. And oftentimes those those card values can be as small as fractions of a penny to as much as thousands of dollars. So it seems like a very complicated market to create.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As a quick side note, though, what I will say is I like the idea of assets existing in the blockchain, especially existing over time, because it gives you like, I don't know, anybody listening who may have played, for example, The Witcher. There's a trading card game in The Witcher, right? Or if you played Final Fantasy VIII, I remember that they had a trading card game. But you get this vibe in the game where people like really have the cards, you know, like if you have this special card, it's been handed down or whatever. It is kind of cool to think about that happening in real life where like there's only so many of these and they've been around for six months and passed down and bid up and whatever. So it it does create a cool dynamic. Uh,
1: Part of the Kickstarter is, you know, some of the levels of the Kickstarter include uh, legendary cards that will never be released again on the entire network. So you can have provably rare digital assets that can provably have scarcity. That's a really interesting twist on this whole thing
0: so mike just to re-emphasize i know you already explained this point but basically all of this that you're explaining like this zombie game or card game that's taking place on the blockchain this is all happening in one of the side chains that loom is using to show Basically, how they're a scaling solution, right? That's the game is one of the many side chains that Loom is creating.
1: Correct. The, the game is meant to grow as large as most mobile games or PC games. And when and if that happens, then they're going to be able to control how much of the scaling that's going on, which is something that a lot of other networks, you know, we go back to CryptoKitties all the time. That CryptoKitties scare. Scared a lot of developers and, and scared people because they want to bring significantly larger mass adoption than what CryptoKitties actually was. This was not a justifiably clogging up the network situation.
0: No, 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 of course. And if you're a developer and you're sinking all your time and resources into creating something and you have to deal with the fact that if you succeed, the network itself will stop you and prevent you from succeeding, that's pretty disheartening. But Um, based on the explanation you said before, when talking about the market, when talking about everything so far, one of the things I see here is that you address decentralization. And obviously, so far, everything you've mentioned sounds pretty centralized. So tell me what you mean by the need for decentralization here.
1: Yeah. So I was reading around a little bit, and what what I liked was they had some comments on here about the pros and cons of decentralization. And these are things that we discuss all the time. They're trade-offs. The head of business development for Loom Network is named Michael um, Kalinan. And he had an interview with Coindesk. I was checking in on what an example of what he was trying to say He said, commenting or changing a profile picture doesn't necessarily require the security of the Ethereum machine. Those are the types of transactions that would happen on a side chain and not need to be reported to the main chain. Microtransactions, who's logging in, who's logging out. These are things that you, you don't need full public access about. So on the topic of decentralization, I see some pros and cons to what they're doing. I I actually like that early on, they're centralizing the side chains. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of transactional data that doesn't need to be made available for all parties immediately. However, there are uh, blockchain explorers and other things that will have access to the public. So the data on the dApp chains is public and shareable. And that's one of the things that I found particularly interesting. If the developers of a, of a Game, So I'll I'll give an example that you and I play a game called Clash Royale. If they decided in that game to take one of the characters in it and make them way better, say, reduce the cost or increase the attack or something really unbalanced, the... Users in the game will have the option, if they decide to, to fork the entire game and create a new subsection of game that can be continued to be developed in however the game actual community chooses to do so. This takes a ton of the power out of the hands of the game and puts the hands in the players significantly more because all of the data is stored on the DApps Genesis block. So any of the data... From the D app that the community decides that they are not a fan of, they have the option to pull themselves together and fork, as any other chain would be able to. A side, a side comment here that I found particularly interesting. I, I happened to stumble upon a video with Vitalik last night, and it was like, I was like watching YouTube videos on Loom, and it overplayed into some Vitalik stuff. And one of the comments he made as I was listening and just kind of writing stuff down. He said, blockchains are provable memory. And and that's the thing that I found really interesting. If you think of blockchain from the beginning, from the original Bitcoin to where we are now, the best way that I've heard to this point to describe what a blockchain is, it's a state of proven memory. With that in mind, there's a ton of options for games. We're going to get into the Plasma Network here pretty soon and how that's going to combine most of these chains together. Is there any questions you have at this
0: point? Yeah, actually, I do have a question. I don't know if you're going to have the answer for this, but it's just something that came to mind when you were talking about splitting. So does that mean... I mean, so I'm trying to understand this version where, like, let's say somebody develops a game, and you're saying that if it's somehow unbalanced, the community would actually have the freedom to fork off the game. So my two questions are... Number one, does that mean that anybody who develops for Loom has to develop the game in a sort of open source license that allows people to just take it and go with it, that there's no proprietary uh, kind of software situation? And number two, in theory, like how, what if the development team isn't maintaining that fork? Like, it sounds like it's one thing to say that you're going to give the community the ability to fork, but if there's no actual way to carry that out and maintain the game, it's practically irrelevant if that makes sense.
1: So from a game theory perspective, I believe this is a nuclear option that exists more so for security than for practicality. If there was any game out there that got big enough that had a divide large enough, then we could have, you know, the game forks that could exist. And I think there's been a few examples of this where I think of different games that could have Easily split into two games at certain points.
0: Okay, so but there's no mention of whether or not like the developers have to make it open source. I mean, basically, so when somebody creates a game dApp for Loom, is it basically guaranteed open source? Since every the community chain can-
1: has its own consensus mechanism and therefore has right. its own rules. So every okay, single every single app is going to have different rules. Now a public. Competitive game that's large enough scale probably has some options for that.
0: Okay, but and it would it's take fair, a it's... massive
1: community movement for this to happen.
0: No, of course, but then it's fair for me to assume that Loom is creating the option so that this dynamic can exist. But a developer, which for example, develop a DApp where the source code is not open could protect themselves from a community split, for example. Correct. I believe that could be
1: part of the initiation process. Okay, so let's keep going. So let's get into Plasma a little bit and... When I, when I entered this, I understood Plasma to be like, if we use the comparison mechanism, Plasma was to Ethereum as Lightning Network was to Bitcoin going into this. I thought it was more of like a side feature that could be attached to the main feature that can help with problems and things of that nature. What I understood from this as I finished the research is that every single item on the blockchain that is going to be on these chains can also be tagged with a unique serial number. What that serial number is, and I actually wanted to ask your opinion on this real quick because I would like to ask the audience, can you just remind me as well as them the difference between fungibility and non-fungibility? Do you have that off the top of your head?
0: Uh, Yeah, just fungible means that they all interact. They're replaceable by each other, that they're exactly the same... As one another. So like one dollar can be replaced by another dollar. I mean, there's a more strict definition that says that they're indistinguishable, but a lot of people use fungibility just to mean that they're equally replaceable, they're identical in value. I,
1: I definitely could have explained that definition. I just forget which one's fungible, and which one's non-fungible. So I just didn't I didn't want to confuse that with anybody. <laughs> but the the token itself is non-fungible and has its own transaction history. So that tag has a history that's lined up behind it. This allows for more proofs and what we described earlier as zero confirmation transactions. What would that mean? Such as changing a profile picture, updating your equipment on a character. These are things that you don't need to post on the Ethereum blockchain. These are not relevant things. And that's why I think centralizing partially makes sense with some of these games. So one of the interpretations I had on Plasma was that it's going to... Combine things that you would use on a normal basis seamlessly with each other. One of the comparisons I had last night when I was taking some notes here, uh, Kareem, you have a player's card for a casino and that casino also has a, a sister property called Coconut Creek. You would use right. the same player's card seamlessly on both of those properties with no real sweat off your back, that even though that's a centralized business, it would seamlessly transact with a single player's card. One of the other things about Plasma is that it allows you to store your assets on the Ethereum blockchain rather than the actual chains of the network. So the Loom token itself, as I mentioned earlier, was the key that would unlock your access to this network. So if you have a single Loom token, whether you purchased it for $1.99, or if you got it for like 10 cents off an exchange, It doesn't matter how you have a Loom token. If you own them and you have them, you access the portal to this world. If there were a theft, a hack, or anything of this nature performed on one of these side chains, guess what Plasma does? It leaves all of your assets within your own network and doesn't allow them to be stolen. These are provably safe, provably verified assets that are yours. There's nothing else anybody can do about it.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense, and I do have um, a question, Mike. Here, just because you mentioned again that for like, let's say one ninety nine, somebody gets access to this network of games. And one of the things that has made games like Magic and Clash Royale and um, a lot of these games so popular is that they have free play options that even though a lot of people have the opportunity to get involved by paying, uh, these games are games that, you know, even though you're limited in how fast you can grow, you could quote unquote grind your way into being competitive. Here, so somebody has to pay for the entrance, but it's only $2. That's basically like downloading an app. That's pretty standard. Once they're in the network, are, are, are they going to have free play options where they can start engaging with or or just to be active in the network? Do you have to constantly be burning money?
1: Loom Network? Absolutely not. It's going to be one token, and that's going to be a lifetime membership. The okay. games themselves are all going to be different. The, right. Okay. The main um, zombie chain which is the chain for all gaming, is called Zombie Chain. Zombie Chain itself is just going to be a chain that Plasma is going to link all of the games together. And you'll have the option of any game that is on the Zombie Chain will work together. Every game is going to have its own rules. Right. Some
0: games are going to be free. Some games are not going to be free. It has been mentioned
1: multiple times they are going to do their best to make free-to-play more competitive Again, with all centralized companies, the incentives don't exactly align here. So I'm not going to say that, you know, paying is not going to make things a lot easier. I'm sure it's going to. But their goal is to make this built by players for players. And one of the ways they're going to do that, the actual zombie battlegrounds game is going to have free to play options and supposed to be relatively competitive. The idea of a lot of these games are they make so many cards that having all the cards is like 10% of the battle a game like you and I play um Clash Royale there's only 80 characters so having all the characters is the first battle and then you would level them up and battle amongst each other I believe this game is going to be more along the lines of 200 cards every set amount of time getting the cards is a task but not an impossible one building a deck from thousands of cards of course extremely more skill intensive than a game of 80 cards so a couple more things behind the scenes with Loom Network, the DApps that run on the network on the DApp chains, they're democratic. So users can develop voting rights based on their staking on the network, depending on what consensus mechanism that they decide to use. And again, I'm going to use some example of bandwidth slash electricity slash gas. You know, the more that you're bandwidth of your dApp is using. It can influence your voting rights based on the entire network. And the reason I think that this is important is because every one of these dApps is going to be extremely different. They're going to have different needs. They're going to have a different business model. And having a way for all of them to have a voice with Loom Network is going to be very important for making sure that we have a healthy network and things maintain in a positive direction. Part of that is one of the things that i found is they talked about a foundation and it wasn't a traditional foundation that you and I might be used to, or I don't believe it mimics the liquid democracy that Zen Cash was is trying to put together. However, what I interpreted this as was we can be the house for you. And I took it this more as an enterprise option where if you're a big business that wants to move your game here and don't want to worry about this blockchain stuff, that's fine. You can Tell us what you want, you can tell us the code you want in your languages, we'll make it happen. We'll do all the nonsense for you behind the scenes for a fee. So pretty much something similar we see in Dragon Chain and some of the other business type right projects.
0: Right, which makes a lot of sense. You know, we're seeing this now with blockchain more, but I mean, this is basically what happened with software, right? Uh, you eventually get to the point where everybody needs to be connected to the internet or everybody needs to have some kind of software that engages with their business model, but not everybody's a software developer. So you go and you pay professionals to develop that for you. So now we're seeing more and more uh, cryptocurrency companies, like you mentioned, Dragon Chain, or like here, Loom is doing, where... Part of the business model is, hey, we'll build a blockchain. Ontology is doing the same thing. We'll build a blockchain. We'll create this network for you. And then one of our proposi- one of our value-added propositions is to take businesses and help them actually start using that network. And so that makes perfect sense. All right. So does that do it more or less for the features and structures, Mike? Yeah, I feel like I,
1: I covered a lot of things. If, if there's any questions, obviously, I'll be happy to answer in the Discord
0: or however you choose to get in touch with us. Oh, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're jumping ahead a little bit. We, don't, we haven't gotten to the questions audience. First, you're going to break this down into pros and cons. Mike, you gave us an idea. Tell us more or less. Some pros, some cons. Go. So what I decided to do with this is I found
1: a couple of the pros and cons as they could go into either category. So I'm actually going to encourage you to work with me on a couple of these. I will go with some of the pros that I found. I like that they have different types of chains. They have main chains, private chains, just there's lots going on. It's very customizable. Right. I like that they're trying to achieve mass adoption through gaming because it's a really popular and easy market to break into. And I like that they're trying really hard to make things as simple as possible. We talked about the membership token being a very seamless transition. A lot of these things are adding up to be very positive.
0: I'll do one edit to your pros, even though it doesn't take away from your main point. I also think that the fact that they're trying to get mass adoption through gaming is fantastic because if you make it in gaming, you can really scale to a massive audience. I don't agree that it's easy to break into gaming. I actually think it's a very, very competitive industry. Like, that, with, that was like, a poor
1: per- per- word choice for sure.
0: Okay, but it's hard to break into. But if you do it, like a popular game crushes it, download twice or whatever, you know?
1: Here's what I've always thought if you break into gaming, aren't you also reaching the best versions of a lot of other apps? And what I mean by that is the amount of graphic design in a game, the amount of elegance that most games require, as far as, you know, storylines and conversation and detail character development all these really complex stories and graphic design and beauty if Uh you're able to achieve a great product at a great level then i feel like there's so many other easy projects for you
0: uh no i understand what you're saying and i agree and especially there's there's different types of gaming success too right like We've seen games that have great storylines become extremely popular, also games that are just very well designed. That's what happens with a lot of these trading card games, that they're so beautifully balanced and designed that it's very engaging. And then you have games like, I don't know, Angry Birds or the one where you just tap the screen. It's really hard to tell, but if you can find something that has people enjoy themselves and entertain themselves and be challenged in a way that they can overcome uh like people love games so people also
1: (laughs) don't don't mind just throwing money at games for instant gratification that's proven over and over again
0: yeah and it's a captive audience too you can even make money just by putting ads in games uh, you know as we've seen from a lot of free uh business models
1: so all right so
0: what about some cons mike
1: So some of the cons are that, and I actually listed this here, the, the market's kind of limited and there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition in crypto. There's a lot of competition in gaming. There's a lot of competition in China, Japan, where they're focusing, uh, they're, they're in Korea a bunch. It's a tough market. I think that that's possible that they may not, not be able to, you know, acquire enough developers to maintain the pace that they would like to maintain, but so far, so good. I think they're doing a good job. A couple of the other cons. Um, at this point, I wasn't able to find any evidence that they planned on becoming their own blockchain. So part of being tied to the Ethereum network is that, that the Ethereum network can be limiting more than having your own blockchain could be. However, we could also argue that that could be a benefit as well that you're able to get the security of the Ethereum blockchain.
0: Yeah. And actually, I would make an exception here, Mike, because it seems like their business model is to create sidechains that are going to help Ethereum scale. So, you know, if at that point, you know, we always say something along the lines of let's judge each project on the merits of what they're trying to accomplish and not unlike the merits of everything that is being done in the space. And then here, like this seems like something that's specifically being created. It's like, It's like if somebody's making wings for airplanes, we can't criticize them that they don't have their own airplane, right? Like their focus is to make wings. So they were trying to make Ethereum faster, more flexible. So, you know, I I don't necessarily think that that, we need to count that as a con.
1: I will admit I was struggling a little bit for cons
0: and I wanted to- And you were trying to be balanced. I know. I know that's I
1: I Honestly, (laughs) I was really trying. So yes, a couple of these are a stretch. The last one that I had written down was something that came to my mind and- The concept is when it comes to gaming itself, and obviously this is only a portion of the Loom Network, but when it comes to games themselves, legendary games that can carry a brand are extremely lucky and extremely rare. For example, a Final Fantasy series, you know, how many games came and failed before the, and after that? You know, you're a huge fan of God of War. I'm not overly familiar with that game, but I know it's got a great long series that has a lot of fans. Even stuff like Madden or NBA Live, those types of games, there, there's some level of luck involved in longevity. Can a brand new competitor reach into a new market and be the legendary game or create the legendary game that is going to define this early generation of blockchain gaming. I don't know. Um, I had an interesting little story I wanted to add. You're familiar with the brand Konami? Of course. So they're a major brand and I hadn't heard of them for a long time. I remember they used to do a lot of stuff with, I want to say Sega Genesis, and it's more been out of sight, out of mind. I hadn't thought of them much. The other day I was walking through Tampa Hard Rock and I noticed one of the machines had a sign that said Konami and it was basically they had moved on from making, you know, only game. I don't know what they're doing modernly, but I wasn't particularly surprised to see them owning, operating, or maintaining a slot machine, which truthfully isn't that much different than a game, which isn't that much different than an arcade game.
0: Right. I thought
1: it was really interesting. That's a cool tilt that a business could do that probably is Almost more profitable than Game well, It's impossible to say that, but a really interesting, profitable business adventure to add.
0: Yeah, I know for sure. And Konami crushed it, by the way. They did Metal Gear, which was one of the best PlayStation series ever. And they did the old Contra's PE Soccer, which was the FIFA competition So they're like
1: I certainly knew the brand. I just nothing came to my mind to associate with them, which could actually go to my earlier point. You know, again, a business like Blizzard Entertainment that has the World of Warcraft series, there's a lot of luck involved. Konami is a brand that I've really recognized that I've known for most of my life, even as a kid, and no games immediately came to my mind. So that's the level of epicness that you're trying to reach, but isn't always achievable.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's true. I guess the one thing we can say in favor of that is that they're at least coming into the blockchain gaming space, which is brand new. If this was a new company just coming into the video gaming space, I would say, good luck, you know, only, only the best and luckiest are going to make it. Here, at least they're competing in a field where a lot of people are just getting started. So if we do end up finding that blockchain can truly provide services and gaming opportunities that are... The traditional gaming world can't, then there's really going to be opportunity for some of these games to become very, very popular. Um, and then we have some trade offs here, Mike. I, I see that you listed, for example, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So this isn't something we've necessarily always done. I believe we've done it once or twice where we've considered more than just pros and cons. And, and the reason I said that is I had four items that we've already touched on that I didn't know which category to put them in. I didn't know if it's a pro or con. So I actually want to turn this around on you, Kareem. I want to ask you, these trade-offs, how do you feel? And why don't we start off with Kickstarter versus the ICO model?
0: Okay. So I prefer the ICO model to the Kickstarter because I think that... Don't get me wrong. I still think that the ICOs in general are being very scammy and they're not properly regulated, but ultimately the ICO is still an investment contract with the community. Whereas a Kickstarter, is a fundraiser that leaves basically no responsibility to, to the people that participated in it. So if I have to pick one or the other, I would prefer the ICO. Um, it also forces them to be more clear about how they're distributing tokens or how they're going to be used. Uh, I understand this was a little different, right? They're doing the game and it's their own thing. But if I had to choose, I would prefer uh, some kind of contract with the investor community, which I don't think we have here.
1: Small small misunderstanding on your side, I want to just make sure that you're clear on. Loom Network did not run the Kickstarter. Well, I guess they, they might have facilitated the Kickstarter. There's three owners or three founders of this company, James Duffy being one of them. James Duffy is the, the head of the zombie chain. He's the, gotcha. the gaming guy.
0: So the Kickstarter was really for zombie chain, not for Loom. It
1: was for zombie
0: battlegrounds. It was the first game only.
1: Well, so, okay, so so, so they, then- trade, they traded. I'll just give you an idea of what the format was. So they, they have a whole article on why they did this. And, and I read it a couple of times just to deliver a couple points. ICOs would help raise um, Ethereum, which has limited use case. Kickstarter raises cash, which has much more valuable, tangible asset in this current market. Kickstarter also allows a non-crypto person to find it. Which I think is pretty important. The entire Kickstarter was based around product on the game. For example, they have a, they have like six base tribes, you know, like fire and water and earth, you know, those types of things. So you, for each $75, you could get an entire collection of that tribe and you get the cards in the game as part of your Kickstarter donation. You also okay, get so- packs and you also, there's, it's set in a – it's structured in a way a lot like an ICO would incentivize people. It's trade-offs. It's, it's all these things. They had baller packages. They had small packages.
0: Right. So, okay, but if this was really more about the game, then I don't think that we need to really present it as an alternative to the ICO because loom itself – wasn't going to have an ICO. They started with private enterprise and the Kickstarter is really only something that was done on one of its sidechains for one of its decentralized applications. So I don't think that's either a trade-off, a negative, or a positive. It's just something that part of their network did. I
1: thought it was an interesting tilt that they decided to take a different approach in hopes of gaining people that aren't fully immersed in blockchain, that are reasonably interested, that may want to invest in a game that is blockchain-based. Give right. them an option
0: to do that. But but Loom didn't do that though.
1: I mean the co-founder of Loom is the founder of Poker Chain okay. and it's it's the same headquarters. I mean I'm I'm assuming it's the same conversations right, right, with right. the same people.
0: No, 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 I understand that, but I'm just saying you were when I when I was saying that I would prefer an ICO, you were very clear. It's like, well, just to be clear, Loom didn't have an ICO, and it's not Zombie Chain that had an ICO, but one of the apps on Zombie Chain had a Kickstarter. So I'm Look, saying
1: this is, a, this is a trade-off conversation. I have no idea if this is good or bad. I don't I don't no, know. I've no, never no, seen I get it.
0: Like it. I I'm just right. I'm saying that's its own thing. It sounds like that was how they distributed their cards for the game. So we'll we'll consider that one neutral. All right. The second one here you have is centralized sidechains for now. Well, you know, I'm generally going to say decentralized is better than centralized, but there's exceptions, of course. Here there's plans for decentralization, so I'd like to see how they play out. And
1: um, Uh, The next one kind of ties a little more into the previous one. And and because the sidechains are occasionally less secure depending on the the consensus mechanism that the chain chooses because they're sometimes less secure than, net, than the eth network, that's why they decided to bring in plasma. The fact that they're, that some of their chains are less secure is a downside, but they also have implementation for how we can make this smoother and less of a problem. I don't know where this falls in my opinion.
0: Okay, yeah. So I actually don't have a problem with this one for a similar reason to something I mentioned before. When we are talking about chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum, my automatic default expectation is that anything that's built on it can only be as safe as the chain itself, or perhaps a little less. Like, yes, things attach to Bitcoin because it's the safest cryptocurrency on the planet. And Ethereum has an insane market cap, an insane number of nodes, an insane number of everything. So, obviously, Ethereum is very secure. So, I'm not really going to knock um, a project that is attaching itself to Ethereum in order to make itself more secure in part. And it's trying to help. Ethereum be more scalable and say, well, you're not as secure as Ethereum. I wouldn't expect it to be, and I would be, I would actually consider a significant pro if it was somehow safer than such a major chain.
1: And some of the concern from the community, uh, and and I think this isn't justified, but I just want to make sure that you and I are on the same page here. the The token itself, the membership token, is two dollars on the website. It is also you know, very cheap on an exchange, probably less than 20 cents. Let me double check. It's been a while since I've looked it up. So uh, people were a little concerned as why the the public one is $2, but the ones on exchanges is much cheaper. Let me get the exact price here.
0: Yeah, so- Even, Mike, actually,
1: I, don't, to- I don't care about the price. Let's just say it's much cheaper.
0: Mike, just to clarify, the way that this works is if I go to Loom and I pay Loom my $2 membership fee, They will take one Loom token and create an account, basically, with my name on it. Is that pretty safe? you can purchase
1: a membership token that gives you access. I I don't know if they technically create an account. I'm guessing they probably
0: create a sub-Ethereum account for you. But it's one token. It's one unit of the cryptocurrency. All right, well, obviously, what's happening here is that Loom has a set price, and of course, the cryptocurrency in the free market is fluctuating in price because it's got a free market operation. So the question here is... It probably is a con, especially if there's no commitment from Loom, but this is why it makes it weird because let's say that the token is at $1 in value and Loom says, well, we're just charged $2 and they're just doing the work for you. But the question is when the free market price of Loom goes above $2, does Loom then change that so that they always have a cushion? Are they basically just charging you a little cushion for doing the process or not? That's that's what's weird. That's why, see, if this was an ICO, I feel like the value of Loom itself would be a, a a relevant point, I guess, for the community. But here, it's kind of weird because the tokens are trading over there. They are essentially selling the token at a fixed price, even though that's it's not being sold that way, but that's basically what it is.
1: Um. So some quick math that I did just to kind of see what this looks like. When the Loom token reaches $2 in exchange prices the market cap of the project's over 11 trillion dollars so okay so that's not happening it's basically ever. it's basically irrelevant so i guess the more i'm thinking about it it's meant to be a custody thing probably more than anything and uh, again 2 dollars doesn't bother me at all what they've said is that the exchanges are more for developers and developers that run side chains that need to stake their tokens to pay things and the other, Or you could create side chains that offer public staking on your network, and you could stake Loom tokens in that, and you can pay out your, some of your network rewards to the users. That's no, going to yeah. depend on how the sidechain develops.
0: Th- this is pretty straightforward. The company is charging a small fixed rate, which they think will always be greater than the token. And that's just a membership fee for getting you started, and they're subtracting the cost of the token that they have to submit from that. So obviously, if you do that process yourself, you can save yourself the overhead or whatever. So that's the question. Can you do that yourself or do you have to go through them? So you,
1: you can do it yourself. And then another point that they mention is uh, sometimes exchanges have pretty large withdrawal fees. I want to say it was either three to five Loom to withdraw the tokens off the exchange. So at some point, you're also buying eight to withdraw Right, you know a couple, you know there's there's not a lot of.
0: Now I I think this was done for the sake of simplicity, and I wouldn't think about it too much. But Um, what I
1: think is that it's it's a very easy question for somebody to ask. It's it's a level of question that I think not a lot of people will put enough thought into.
0: No, no, no. Of course, of course. So, Mike, if somebody wants to buy Loom, where can they do that?
1: Uh, It's on Binance, which adds a lot of credibility to the project, in my opinion. It's also on KuCoin. It's a few different places, but those are the only places that stood out.
0: All right. And what do you think are the main competitors?
1: Obviously, this is a difficult question to ask because in some fashion, a lot of things are competitors, but more specifically, they mentioned Steam, Engine, and Raiden Network as competitors. They listed Plasma itself as a competitor, and I don't know enough to Understand why maybe Plasma itself is interested in doing its own, doing some of its own things, or maybe it's looking to uh, unattach itself from Ethereum eventually. That I am not certain of.
0: My only guess is that isn't Plasma a scaling solution for Ethereum? So, in that context, if Loom is trying to be a scaling solution, Maybe it's a, comp- a competitor in that area.
1: To my understanding, they're working together right now. So right, 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 right. So maybe okay. at some point they won't work together. I'm not sure. That's probably something. Mike, we can let's look get to, to for.
0: let's get to the good part. What is your personal future outlook on this project?
1: I mean, obviously, I've been pretty clear from the beginning that I'm a big fan of this, and there's many, many reasons why. You know, I remember the very first time that I started playing Candy Crush for example, that was the first time I was introduced to a game that used game theory in a very unique way where it restricted the time that you could play, it restricted, you know, how often you could spin a wheel to get a free item. It restricted it in a way that actually created a desire to keep going this is going to continue to grow and evolve and be chiseled out in a more eloquent way over time. I really think that mobile gaming is going to continue to rise. I think gaming itself is going to get larger and larger, particularly with the new generation of kids that are way more tech savvy than I am, which is, you know, hard to admit based on how much time I've spent using electronics on a regular basis. I think that, you know, If they keep up the user experience the way that I've seen so far between the professionalism on Medium, the professionalism on the website, the way that they're handling things, if they continue to develop this and keep putting out good products, then I see this being very successful long-term.
0: Awesome. That sounds exciting. And uh, of course, now here's normally where I would wrap it up, but Mike, you have here a big old sign in the outline that says, You need to rant about something. So let me get get the audience ready. I want you to transport yourself to a time and episode far away from this 101. We are now essentially at a flagship end of episode rant. And this is our co-host, Michael Lockie. Mike, what do you want to tell the people?
1: So yeah, we usually reserve the rants for the flagship, but when when I was researching this, I like to include it because things come to my mind that I think the audience might want to hear, and and these are two different things that I decided to touch on. One, uh, I love the zombie theme, and I hope it was really carefully chosen artistically as the representation of humankind needing crypto to rise up and you know beat the bureaucrats and whatnot. I'm hoping there's some allusion to a end boss Bowser style Donald Trump that is the end boss that, you know, it just represents in a beautiful way what we are trying to do as a society and particularly this podcast, Crypto Itself. I hope that we're just trying to rise up against against all the uh,
0: CEOs and people that aren't interested in what's going on in the rest of the world. It is, you know, until you had mentioned that, Mike, I hadn't thought about the crypto zombie or whatever as a allegory to the fact that you can't kill crypto, son, can't kill Bitcoin, you can't kill Ethereum, and no matter how try hard you try, you can't kill Goku either. All right, continue. <laughs> <laughs> that was
1: one thing I wanted to add. You know what the other thing is? In the baller package of the Kickstarter, they have a package where you can be characterized put in the game as a character, made into a legendary version in the game. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and just hope that the universe is listening somehow. I think the Crypto Basic team would make amazing caricatures. And we've been described as the impractical jokesters of crypto podcasting. (laughs) That might be a little specific, but I don't care. I'm just going to put out in the world. I think myself, Brent and Kareem would make awesome characters. And I think we'd be really good in the game.
0: Yeah, okay, so I guess since you brought this up, I have to tell the story that I don't remember when it was a few weeks back, but <laughs> at some point in the middle of the night, Mike's just like blowing up our Discord, or our Snapchat, and he's just like, You guys need to look at this, da da da. And it's the game, and he's like, Look at the baller package, and it's something like you got to pay like five grand to get characterized in the game and everything and mike is basically trying to convince brent and i he's like come on guys it would be super awesome we'd be in this game and of course those of you that know what a complete nit i am that i try to save money on what coffee machine i buy obviously i'm not paying five grand to be characterized (laughs) it would be awesome i think i'd make a great zombie i would be a bearded zombie for sure but that is real monies so unfortunately mike so sorry you make a great zombie but No, no, (laughs) money. (laughs) So
1: I recently heard the term um, irrational exuberance and I've heard that phrase a lot and I never really connected my brain what it meant until recently when it was used in a context that I understood better. I have a ton of irrational exuberance. I get excited easily. I get super interested. And then I use people around me to keep me in check. Obviously, in hindsight, I know that I was not going to win that argument or that introduction or that battle. But yeah, obviously, that would be super cool. And I could think of how great it would be to see the three of us <laughs> running around playing oh, yeah. a game. You know, I, I envision these things as being wildly successful and fun. Obviously, these guys are like, OK, yeah, let's, let's get back to reality. So <laughs> well, this is my last ditch effort to make sure that I think the entire world should know that we would be awesome.
0: Well, you know, it's just about trying to reach a happy medium. Uh, Mike takes us to the clouds; I bring us back down to below Earth, and combined, we just walk the ground. <laughs> but uh, no, this is this is pretty cool. It's an it's an interesting project. By the way, usually talking about when the market is going crazy, like it's going now. That's what um, irrational exuberance that came from one of the Fed. Uh, Chairs of the Federal Reserve trying to talk about how the markets sometimes blow up, like in 2018. And anyway, I think we're seeing that a little bit with the stock market. Apple just hit a trillion. Save that for the flagship. I'm excited to talk about that. Uh, Anyway, Mike, any other words? Any other parting messages? Anything about Loom? Anything about how sexy you would look as a zombie? No.
1: No, not really. I think I think I did a good job covering (laughs) as much much as I could. And feel free to get in touch with us if there's anything you disagree
0: with. All right. So that is going to mean we are going to sign ourselves off. As Mike said, if you have any questions or comments, if you think we missed something, please reach out to us on Discord, or you could also reach out to Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, make sure you check out our other one-on-ones and concepts. If you want to support us, the best thing and easiest thing you could do is head on over to iTunes and just give us a rating real quick. It does make a difference, helps people find the show. Uh, other than that, just remember, we are not financial advisors, just a bunch of nerds that like crypto and like games, and therefore are kind of qualified to talk about this, which is cool, but we're not financial advisors. All right, this is going to do it. My name is Karim Baruke. I was here with a loom extraordinaire, Michael Lockie. Thank you so much for tuning in. Ciao.